0: Uh, this year, it is the 100th anniversary of the crossing of the Atlantic and the 100th anniversary of the a- airline that would eventually become British Airways. Who better to talk about the dawn of the jet age, BOAC, and progress in transatlantic passenger flight uh, than Captain Hugh Dibley, fellow of the Royal Aeronautical Society. Captain Dibley's career spanned piston engine airlines from the Douglas DC-7 to the Havilland Comet to Boeing 707, 747, right up to Airbus Fly-by-Wire as well as an interesting second career as a racing driver in the swinging 60s. It's a real privilege to sit down and talk to him today. Captain Liff, welcome. Um, what, what sparked off your, your interest in aviation in the first place? How did you get interested in flying?
1: Uh, my father was in the Navy, um, and all I was interested initially was flying in the Navy. Then we moved to the end of runway 36 of Leon the Solar, which was the headquarters of the Fleet Air Arm at the time. So I was weaned on sea hornets and sea furies and sea fires coming over the house, literally almost taking the, the chimney pots off. So all I wanted to do was fly a plane to the Navy from the age of about 10 onwards.
0: Okay. And you, you learned to fly with the, the, the Royal Navy in, in, in the 50s then, so... Well,
1: like many people, I joined this, the combined cadet force. The school I was at, we had started in the army. I moved to the naval section and then to get a flying scholarship I moved to the RAF section and what you did was go to Hornchurch to take the RAF um, pilots ability and if you managed to scrape through that then you could get a flying scholarship which many of my vintage did and that gave you 30 hours to get a private pilot's license. So I did 30 hours on a Tiger Moth at the Royal Naval Flying Club Gospel which soon was turned into a
0: hiding (laughs) estate. And what happened after that? Then, so, so how did you get from the from the navy to a sort of civil career?
1: Well, I wanted to, as I say, fly in the navy. There, I didn't want to go to Dartmouth, which was the the career for the navy, because you had to leave school at I think thirteen, fourteen, go to Dartmouth, and then you didn't fly until you were twenty years old. That was very old. Yeah. So being a you know a brat, I thought, well, I'll try for national service or a four or eight years commission I'll try for national service because I was concerned that if I didn't make it as a pilot I might be uh, becoming a looker, an observer Yeah. so anyhow I just managed to get into the last course which actually flew in the navy went to, did my basic flying on a piston provost at Syrston, then the Duncan Sands to Vence Cuts came in and all the r VR b disbanded so I then went to the Ark Royal to finish on my national service.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. So it happened at the Ark
1: Royal, uh, the captain was, um, who later became an admiral, Frank Hopkins, who we all very much respected. He's one of the few captains, I think, who actually flew an aircraft onto the ship that he was in command of. So he flew a Seahawk. <laughs> and he knew I was dithering whether to sign on in the Navy. He did say to me, "If you thought a civil flying? At the time, I thought, not really. Then when I came out, I looked around, I'd missed going to university, I'd had to sort of do a a year, and I thought, well, I'll try to get into BOAC, and if that works, I'll I'll join BOAC, and I was fortunate enough just to scrape into BOAC. I had an interview, and they said, all right, you need to go to AST at Hamble, and we, we trust them, and if they give you a satisfactory report, then we might take you on. So I did a short commercial course there to, to uh, convert my military flying into
0: a civil licence OK, and what was that training on there then? What was the, what was the kind of training? Uh, basically
1: that was mainly chipmunks okay. and it was interesting quite topical, um, fairly recently Upset Recovery we did Upset Recovery you know, they would put us upside down and say now recovery on basic instruments so all that training was part of the, the scene at that time and I think I flew an Anson to get the dual yeah. We had to get a dual engine uh, qualification. But my first type rating on my licence was Oster Variance. Because you just had to put something on that.
0: <laughs> and what was the, I mean, the, was, the, was there a, a lot of competition to get into to, to BOAC in, in, in those days? Well, I mean, you know, Getting in at the, that you can your foot in the door. Was it very, very kind of? Was a lot of other people trying to do the same thing there? I suppose
1: so. The, the, my colleague, there were two of us, Bishop and RVR. Ian Haney was the other one at Sarsden. I'd done a flying scholarship. He hadn't, so I had. He had slightly more hours to do. Um, I managed to get into BOAC in September '58, and he. I think he didn't get his license quite in time, or whatever. So he joined BEA the following year, which is very similar, I guess. But. Uh, I think if you if you had the the right licences, then you could get in. I know my father-in-law, uh, my sister's father-in-law was an air marshal, and she did say to him, "He's thinking of getting to P.O.S.C. What do you think of that?" And he said, "Oh, very good if he can get in."
0: <laughs> <laughs> and when when you started in, uh, so starting as a a, a, a pilot, then no, it? the
1: good thing. Which many people didn't like. I thought it was extremely good at the time. Uh, You needed straight navigators to navigate in those days. Using Astro, you had no drift ground speed. Um, You had Loran when it was available. The wind forecasts weren't that good. So you definitely needed flight navigators at that stage. So the policy for BOAC from 1952 on, I think, was they introduced the pilot's initial navigation scheme. So, and bear in mind I joined in 58. So it had been going for some time. They made the navigators redundant. And so the pilots would navigate for about three years. And then they would be given a pilot's course. And this was, I think, very good, because it gave them very good grounding on performance, flight planning, and also the route structure, because you flew all over the world and you were watching what was going on. So, and I, aged 21, which I was lucky enough to start, thought I wouldn't possibly be qualified to sit in the right-hand seat of a cruiser with some very old captain of 35. Because <laughs> <laughs> most of the people were just coming out of the war, of course, and they were in their late 30s, 40s, 50s. We had some Imperial Airways captains who, some of them were complete a real delight to fly with. What I can think of was Nigel Perry, who was the black sheep of his family. All his brothers were admirals and Ambassadors <laughs> and bishops, uh, but he was a, a, a delight to fly with. There were some very lovely captains to fly with in those days, I thought. Okay.
0: So, so, as a navigator, York, your first aircraft was the uh, uh, was the
1: DC 7 or something? It was a 7C. You, you could navigate on the airplane, of course. Yeah. So, the first flights I was doing was leaving about 11 o'clock at night in London, Presswick, Gander, Boston, New York, wow. I think. And I didn't know which way was up by the time <laughs> I got to the other end. But I was just under supervision, helping with, an, you know, with a supervisor. So I did three trips on seven seas, then a couple of trips on Britannia 312s, which were the long range three Britannias. Then I was on Britannia 102s, going to, um, well, as far as Sydney, going mainly to India, which was not popular with the straight navigators. We never got a look in to go and see South America because that was still going to the straight navigators.
0: Wow, okay. But
1: then there was mainly an industrial decision when the 707 came in. Um, I should say I went from, ended up on Comets then. So I I was navigating on Comets for about a year. Then there was an industrial decision that um, they wanted, Balpa wanted three pilots on the 707. The company thought only two pilots were necessary. So all the third pilots were posted to the 707 as navigators and all the straight navigators were taken off the 707. So I was on the 707 from 61, 62, until in BOAC 70, or BA 71, BOAC, BOAC till 71. In fact, I kept flying it with the Shakes and Abu until till 1991. So I actually was on the 70 for 30 years, on and off.
0: Ah, okay. So when you started off on the on the Navigator, you know, obviously 100 years of transatlantic flying. Yes. And uh, last week we had a space-based ADS-B come in. That was, ah. uh, uh, greater visibility across the Atlantic. What was it? What was it like when you were starting out on the, on the uh, DC-7 uh, or, or the Comet being a navigator and mm. navigating your way across the Atlant- Atlantic and knowing you were out of, you know, sort of radio range and, and, and what have you, and the, uh, it, radar range from the, from the you know, you were uh, on your own basically. Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a good job satisfaction because if you walked off the flight deck, <laughs> generally speaking, they could they wouldn't find their way. I mean the most, we obviously for a while did the Pacific so doing uh, Tokyo-Honolulu where the winds could be up to 250 knots not terribly well forecast you know, and uh, so it would take you uh, oh, a matter of several hours less going eastbound than it did westbound, and westbound we'd have to go through Wake Island, we couldn't make it non-stop Honolulu, so those there you were having to use Astro and Loran yeah. and at night looking at a CRT display with all the sky waves, you can basically take a, get any reading you liked so it was more of an art than a science saying you know is my fix right was the wind misforecast? Um, and occasionally people did get um, found themselves on the Atlantic especially from Bermuda coming back where you the Loran was not good yeah. uh, coming in a bit further south than they thought. <laughs>
0: But you, you were flying, and these are the obviously pre-ETOPS days, so you were always always flying within range of a, a W. Well, we were four-engine
1: aeroplanes, so, yeah. so it wasn't a problem. Having said that, if we could cover that, the big difference between when the jets came is with the li- reliability on a f- piston-engine aircraft. It was not unusual to have an engine failure, shall we say, you might even say, it was unusual not to have an engine failure. <laughs> and there were uh, several ditchings. So uh, People think about Sully being yeah know first ditching, no there were several ditchings Pan Am i think had a couple Or certainly American operators to have a runaway prop you know where yeah. the drag was so high you couldn't go anywhere
0: mm-hmm. so the the comet obviously uh first transatlantic jet airliner um, what was that like to 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 fly and obviously more reliable and, and, and uh you know a, a better experience for the, for the passengers Well definitely
1: I think the big change on the comet. A, it was a beautiful looking aeroplane, I think one has to say that. But B, of course, the takeoff performance of a four engine aeroplane is not as good as a twin, because basically it all depends on the engine failure of one engine. So a twin, if you have an engine failure, it's half the performance. Well if on a twin, both engines are going, the takeoff performance is spectacular as it is now, and everybody's used to that. Now the comet was a four engine Jet, but really overpowered. Yeah. So, really, the performance in a comet was rather like a twin nowadays. But when you compare that to a Stratocruiser or an Argonaut or Constellation, even a beautiful airplane, lumbering off the ground and flying almost horizontal till it <laughs> disappeared into the distance, a comet would go shooting up to, well, over 40,000 feet even. Um, uh, but it was not economic. The, uh, in fact, when you were light, you save fuel by shutting down an engine or two, <laughs> <laughs> which not many people did for some, but it was said that Alabaster, the flight manager used to, if they were really scratching for range they would yeah. shut down an engine.
0: But obviously if you're going faster then extra pressure on the navigators to do quicker fixes. Uh,
1: yes, <laughs> <laughs> and we were using Astro, um, Astro navigation through the roof, and you, you, you had to pre-compute what, basically what you did, you would pre, pre-compute the position or the angle of 3 stars plot that on a chart then you would take a, the actual angle of the star through the sextant, which you took 2 minutes to, to take Yeah. and then you would plot the difference between you, where, you, where you thought the angle should be and what it actually was so it was. It took about 15 minutes to do an astro fix I occasionally uh, attempted to do 20 minute astro so it meant to say you were working all the time wow. and yeah. uh, it was interesting, when I first flew in the right-hand seat as co-pilot on the Atlantic on a 707, got to the other end, I feel, I feel much, quite <laughs> less tired now, <laughs> because as a flight nav, you were really working all the time.
0: Wow, oh, okay. With, with the, in those days, uh, you know, we we tend to think about uh, the jet age as uh, inevitable, it's something that it was going to happen anyway, and, and it, that... Uh, were, were, is that correct? Or were, were some of the airlines nervous about newfangled jets, and, and uh, we've got we've got super constellations, and, and, well, uh, and especially obviously with the the, the comic crashes, were they were they all well, in favour of jets, or did some of them... Well, I think
1: BOAC and was actually introduced the Britannia, as you probably know. Um, they had the Brabazon, which really was a non-starter, and then de Havilland's persuaded them to bring in the comet which wasn't economic at that stage but it really was a vast improvement for the passengers because you above all the weather it was smooth and a bit noisy outside but inside it was superb so the improvement in the passengers was, was uh, magnificent um, but sadly the comet was too small the comet 4 and um, that was introduced in 58 but as you know BOAC managed to beat Pan Am across the Atlantic because Pan Am had assumed that they would be the first jet aircraft, jet airliner across the Atlantic and publicized, I think, on the 26th of October, they would operate New York, Rome, or whatever. And BOAC, who had been flying some tri- trial flights across the Atlantic, suddenly got permission to operate in New York. I think at the end of, I forgot it right, the end of September, the next day they said, Right, we're going to operate. And so they. they <laughs> they operated and they op- had to go via Gander on the westbound uh, but the direct, they would go direct eastbound, but again that transformed um, uh, flying for passengers yeah. uh, but the 7 was uh, a, a, a different uh, league partly because you know, the, the, the policy was to go for the engines under the wing which uh, structurally was better And it was obviously carried twice as many passengers, and the range was much better. So that's why BOAC uh, ordered 707-436s, which in fact was my first pilot's license. But but getting back to your first question, BOAC was dithering whether whether the jets or the props would be good. So they had ordered a Britannia, but in due course, the jets proved to be favourable.
0: Okay, and um, what about what about the the early uh, sort of uh, what about what, what about the, the back of the aircraft and and uh, the cabin and, and uh, you know people getting <laughs> dressed up for for the flight? Did that happen? You know, people sort of well, up. initially,
1: as you the, mainly people were flying first class. I mean, in, in the days of British when when they first started in um, the 1919s and things, you could see from the. From the from the food they carried that it was (laughs) grouse and stuff that it was all first class service then in fact when we I think the initial BOAC Comet 1s were mainly first class on the Comet 4 economy was being introduced and um, then I think the BOAC generally introduced the apex first I think they, they were the it was all controlled by IATA, which many people complained about. Okay. That that was a cartel, they said. And I, BOAC actually introduced the idea of having advanced passenger excursion fares or something. I probably got the name wrong. But you you bought the fares in advance. Yeah. And therefore it would be cheaper. Okay. And Rod Muddle, who, who was one of the economists brought in by BOAC to look at the fare structure, he said at an IATA conference they proposed this, everybody said no, we don't like that. Then they said, well, if you, you think of a better idea. And so then everybody adopted it. <laughs> so cheap affairs started to come in, but mainly uh, people were looking at first class service, I guess, as the the real elite.
0: Ok. So how, how, many, how many years then were you on a, a, a with the, uh, were you, you three years on, on, the, on the Comet as navigator and then you went to... No, I did Se- one, one,
1: one year as a Comet oh, okay. uh, navigator, yep. then I went to Seven O's and flew exclusively as a navigator probably for a year. Then I was given the pilots course, and in those days the simulators were not very advanced, so we were having to do most of the training on the aeroplane. Oh, wow! Okay. And the 707 436, as it was, had Rolls Royce engines, more powerful than the Pratt Whitney's in the um, in the American version. Also, the thrust was instantaneous, shall we say? If you on training at, uh, on takeoff, we used to when you brought the outboard engine back to idle, the thrust was gone very quickly. If you didn't get the rudder in instantaneously, you could lose control of the airplane, oh, okay. which. Um, some companies discovered fairly late on when they got hold of the airplane. But I handed to to BOAC that they trained a lot of people like myself who had pretty low hours. Yeah. You know, probably piloting hours. I had 300 hours, something like that, when I went on the 7 hour. I probably had 1,500 navigating hours, so I was aware of what was going on. Yeah. But it, 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 we, we did not um, lose it in from the time that uh, I was in BIC, we didn't lose any airplanes from crew, shall we say, mismanagement Mm. really, Uh, because the policy then was, which was introduced in about 1960, was that a co-pilot should be trained to the same standard as a captain, so he should be able to monitor what the captain was doing, and we should have fly leg and leg about, and if the co-pilot was flying the leg, he should make all the decisions to sign the fuel and if we were stay down the route, if it was the co-pilot's sector, the station staff who had to do the flight plan because there were no computers in those days, they would ring up the co-pilot and say, right, what's your fuel? Here's the weather, what's your fuel? To make sure the co-pilot was equally capable as the captain.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Talking about the kind of cockpit management and, and uh, things like that, um, pre, it's obviously pre-CRM and, and the, the, the things about cockpit gradients was... And, and you, you mentioned earlier, earlier. Uh, you know, some of these, some of the captains would be, would be, you know, imperial Airways, or may have flown Lancasters in World War Two. Well, yes, they were. Um, was there a big difference in seniority, and, and also for the for for co-pilots, was it generally a case of shut up and keep quiet and, and learn? Keep well, as I was
1: saying, the OAC brought that policy in from about 1960. Yeah, uh, I remember talking to Jack Nichol, who was uh, was flight manager tra- training at the time, and went on to. Uh, be in charge of the Oxford Training School. He was said in 1960 in BOAC, we realized I had too many accidents because the co pilots were underqualified and they weren't good at monitoring the captain. Therefore, as I just said, yeah. we will give them a part one. You could, at that stage, you could have a, a part one or a part two rating on your license for your type rating for your aircraft. And they gave us all type one ratings. Uh, which is the same as a captain. So the idea is we should be trained to the same standard as a captain. And it took a bit of time, but they, uh, it was similar to introducing checklists. Yeah. Uh, you may require on a different subject, Douglas Bader. Uh, One of his accidents, because he didn't use checks and took off in coarse pitch on his aeroplane and went off the end of the runway. (laughs) So, and I know talking to one of the, he was ex military. Pilots who was then a training captain on strata cruisers and he had a he taxied out with a Imperial Airways captain. And bear in mind he was a, a sort of junior training captain, and the Imperial Airways captain, from what I remember of uh, him saying, "Oh, I don't use checklists." So it was Tom Nesbitt Just said, "I have control. Taxi back to the ramp and shut down." <laughs> he said, "If you don't use check- checklists, you have no place in POAC. Wow. Okay. And much the. It was a longer week explain, and also they emphasised that you, you've got to give flying to the co-pilots. You, you, they are there to assist you. That was the policy in Boeing. And I remember doing a um, my early trips on Britannia 102 with a very mature, ex- must have been ex-Imperial Airways captain. Maybe he was ex, but the co-pilot was basically first officer, was instructing him all the time. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so it was accepted that. that um, uh and I remember, sometimes in fairly jocular ways, a, a, a good friend was going into, into Idlewild, as it then was. And one of the more excitable ex-senior um, captains was um, when the Kennedy said, have you got the field in sight? He said, tell him I've got the field, tell him I've got the field. And the co-pilot just started getting out of his seat and going, where are you going? He said, if you're going to land there, I'm not going to be sitting beside you when you do. That's Navy New York. <laughs> So I think there was a good repartee between the co-pilots and the captains, yeah. although it's fair to say there were some very, they say very senior captains who were not particularly approachable. Yeah. But I found that they were fairly rare. But that was my, find, my
0: finding. Were you assigned the same crew? Or was it? No, was
1: absolutely not.
0: No. The,
1: it's, but it's interesting, though, that there were various different airlines, of course, one might say, because there were the Atlantic Barons, Okay. Who were flying across the Atlantic, of course, in, in the strata and all these things. The big difference was they were paid allowances in dollars,
0: ah, okay. rather
1: than getting meal allowances. Now those of us going to the Far East, you just stayed at hotel and you got full board. So nobody, uh, you know, so it was very different. Okay. And um, then when the 70 came along, of course it enveloped all these routes. And in BOAC then decided we would have three routes. We would have the North Atlantic of course all the barons stayed on <laughs> and uh, I forgot the second one was to South America and we junior people ended up going to Africa okay. and, and the far east and of course frankly going to Africa was in a way far more of a challenge yeah. because there were no aids no ATC um, very little information you could be going quite often you took off without any, any forecast because it just wasn't available and you had to plan to go somewhere else and hope you got All the information you've got airborne when you got to the other end. Very basic age, probably just NDBs, no ILS. So that was a great challenge. And again, I thought we're bound to have a little incident here or there, but
0: we did not. In the the pre computer, pre electronic scheduling databases and and diaries and calendars, what was rostering like in those days? Um, did you get any any say over which routes you could fly, or was it was it a case of buffing up the chief pilot and saying, "Well, oh, I'd like will to, I'd like to join the the, the transatlantic barons." <laughs> <laughs> well, I
1: think that was prob- I think which route you went on was was probably done on seniority, you know, the dreaded seniority. Yeah. I know I think my seniority was a thousand and twenty eight for years, <laughs> um, but th- the rostering was done basically by scheduling staff. Or, or, or Gordon Tucker was in charge but there were a series of women and yes it was a question of chatting up <laughs> the women because then when I was motor racing I was trying to get back for weekends so uh, I would sort of agree to go on the worst routes. I spent a lot of time sitting in Kano in Africa which nobody wanted to go there during the week because it was you know it give time off for weekends but um, then that was not something I'm particularly proud of there was a big BOAC pilots dispute of which um, First Officer Tebbit was involved, that's Norman Tebbit, who I flew with on 707s, of course, uh, that we, the pilots wanted to go to a computerised bidding system for trips. OK. And the company was resisting that because initially they had done their best and they had a very good system called Platoros because initially it, you couldn't schedule anything. So they would say, right, we will, give you, we will work for three weeks uh, you may be doing anything in that period and you will have a week off but that will be forecast throughout the year Yeah. and they felt that was as good a system as you could and in fact in many ways it was, it probably wasn't terribly efficient on cruise. but uh, they had, most people were on this platter or system and I personally just was on a random system all the time which suited me personally, needed some people to do that but then as I say we came in with a bedline computerised system where you've got to be a good mathematician the expert in the in the in the rules to get the right chips, you can. The people who do that do that engineer it very very
0: well. Wow. Okay. And, and another. So uh, you've you mentioned it already. Let's let's take a, t- a tangent off there. You you almost had a, a sort of a second career as a racing driver, um, rubbing shoulders with legends such as Sterling Moss, <laughs> Jackie Stewart. Um, you know how did you how did you fit that in with your full time job and, and and did you ever consider sort of saying well actually i I'm, I'm quite good at this i I should go into i should go and, and, and join the F1 boys?
1: No, my first wife thought of that, but no, basically, it was because if I'm probably flying aircraft in the Navy, probably that would have been adrenaline enough perhaps. <laughs> And I'd always regrettably started driving when I was 12, you know, because we had a farmhouse and with a long drive and uh, I used to drive in hindsight like like an idiot, but maniac. And I thought, well, I I used to go to Goodwood, which was a local track, and I thought, well, I'll have a go. And I bought a car that had been raced by somebody else and I thought, well, I'll see how I get on compared to him because everybody said that uh, he was quite successful. And then of course, when I'd driven it and was driving quite well, they said, "Well, he wasn't any good anyhow." But, <laughs> but that's not quite true. But then I thought, "Well, I'll try." And I then got into Formula Juniors, and um, I was more interested in the driving. I, in fact, when I was assessed um, in '64, I guess I went to the States when I was driving a Brabham BT8 sports car, and up. The battle is um, getting the car, right car at the right time. And so I, I had a two and a half litre car, whereas I was competing against people like Denny Hum, who became world champion in a two litre. So I beat Denny, but at least I did. <laughs> I should have done, and I did. But at that stage, um, I got to know Sterling through flying. I, I met him. Uh, um, no, actually, not through flying. I just met him around the corner here. I think I met his secretary, Valerie Piri, at the steering wheel club oh. and got to know Sterling. Uh, and then I met him uh, at, at, at the Nassau Speed Week because and Sterling was there. So I, I became very friendly with Sterling. Then he, sadly, after his accident, I was at Goodwood when he had his accident. I was very close to that. Uh, then he started running his own team.
0: Right.
1: And, uh, he asked me to drive his um, uh, Lotus Elite, correction, Lotus Elan. Sorry, Lotus Elan, at Sebring, and of course, being a good boy, I mean, he, he liked to use me because uh, he knew I could get there fairly cheap with BOAC, and I wouldn't ask for any money. That wasn't that professional. <laughs> so I got to know Sterling, and then when I'm uh, running a BT8, I used to enter it under his name. So okay. it was under uh, it was entered under Sterling Moss Automobile Racing Team. Although it was my car, oh. and then later on yeah, he, he i used his mechanics so i'd pay him to pay his mechanics not a lot in those days
0: you didn't, you didn't ever ever there wasn't any room in the in, you know in the belly of it, you didn't ever, ever transport the cars around by your your in your aircraft then and, and turn out up somewhere and, and you know, <laughs> no, I <model> didn't. <laughs> than, uh, have <laughs> I a, did. Well, funny enough, I didn't
1: actually drive in Europe much because I couldn't afford the time. You know, I only d- was driving mainly locally in uh, in the UK. Uh, although I did, well, I, dro- I drove at Le Mans later on. But uh, uh, no, initially I just had a, a trader put my car on the back. And I, it shows how life was different. I just le- left it in the crew car park, came back. It sort of scraped the rust off it and took it down to brands. Uh, <laughs> and then later on, in those days at 30. there was a thirty mile limit on a trailer, and to get up to Snetterton, you know which is up near Norwich, would take a day at thirty miles an hour, <laughs> so I had so many speedy convictions and what I did for in sixty two I bought an old Daimler ambulance
0: yeah
1: and took my car around at a Daimler ambulance, so I, I'd sell it saved having a, a restriction on the speed. Uh, but uh, you were then it, what I was saying is that I did the West Coast series in this Brabham BT-8 yeah. so I went out there with well, Brabham um, Bruce McLaren Jackie Stewart Graham Hill Frank Gardner, you know them now the interesting thing is I went out there and I took a well, so I had two weeks off, part of the problem is, is actually keeping in recency, you know yeah. driving wise, because I'd been flying a lot and um, while I was out there at Riverside, Goodyear came along and said would you like us to try, your, try our tyres? I said yeah, why not? Everybody up to that stage used Dunlops, and wet or dry, it was the same, just one, one tyre. And I was quicker than Jack Brabham and his works car, or Frank Gardner, or everybody, so I, I won there and I was quicker at Laguna Seca. Um, but looking back on it, it was probably Goodyear tyres. The significant <laughs> thing was that Jack Brabham switched to Goodyear for his Formula One team the next year. But Jack was a, a good, you know, I was obviously his customer in a way.
0: Yeah. And uh, were were management were were, were BIC management. Were you? Were, were they? Were they happy with your this sort of kind of hobby stroke? No, that thing? was or, 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 No. Or did they? Did, no, in fact,
1: they couldn't have been nicer. Yeah. In that as I started to get well known I think his name was John Helmore, who was the human resources or human remains person. I didn't know it was personnel had me in the office and said look we, hear, we see you're motor racing if you ever want an advanced salary if you're getting short of money just oh, let wow. us know I then was taken in to, I was interviewed by the flight Ops director uh, who was a Captain Peacock who was and he just all he did was have a look at me, see what I was like. He 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 actually said, "Ah, what a, there's an idea is that you have in the wet, you have compressed air and you squirt it in front of the tiles. What do you think as 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 an idea?" Basically, he, what he wanted to see who, what sort of person I was. Was I fiddling the roster? Was I upsetting the rest of the crews? I think.
0: Okay. Yeah. And
1: then they said, "Fine. Now, when it's 64." As I say, I made mean, have good friends of mine, Jimmy Clark, um, uh, I just knew well, and I, we'd been racing up at Old Park, I suppose. The next day we were at Heathrow Terminal 3, and I saw Jim, and he said, well, Where are you off to, Jim? And he said, I'm going to New York. I said, What? Who with? He said, T W I I said, you bugger, why aren't you coming with us? Oh, he said, If, if I know you were on the airplane, I would come with you. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, that was another story, um, if it's relevant while well, I'm talking about it when he won Indianapolis he bought himself a Twin Comanche and he said what about us delivering it if you come with me we can deliver it from Boston to Gatwick and I said well that's a bit of a joke here. why not like an idiot fortunately my boss George Lace who'd obviously you know, been in the war flying those sort of routes he said you'll get stuck in Gander he said we're short of third pilots no you can't do it so I rang up Jim and said sorry I can't do that. So he said, I'll get get a ferry crew to do it. Saw him a few weeks later, I said, how's your airplane, Jim? He said, took took off from Boston and never seen off again.
0: Blimey. Right.
1: But I think that was because they got the CG, put a tank in the back and got the CG wrong. Yeah. yeah. But um, I then discovered most of my colleagues in red motor racing were not flying BOAC. The main, the only people who were actually using BOAC by choice was um, Reg Parnell. Right. Sterling would, would use whoever he got to be a better deal out of. <laughs> so I then wrote a very stroppy letter to Sir Giles Guthrie, saying that you know we weren't doing well enough. I enlisted all the people. I got a re- letter by reply saying you know we must do better. And perhaps as a result of that, or they began to realise how much international motor racing was growing. Yeah, yeah. Then they started sponsoring a BOAC race.
0: Oh wow! Well, okay. They
1: started a BOAC 500 at Brands Hatch in 1967 and that was an extremely good marketing yeah, yeah. exercise because it was known as the BOAC 500 and it was part of the Le Mans series so if you looked at a at a programme in Le Mans it gained the list and it said BOAC 500 at Brands Hatch yeah. the 24 hour at Daytona was sponsored by Alitalia.
0: Ah, okay. But it was
1: known as the 24 Hours at Daytona. If you you had to go to Daytona to see Alitalia. Yeah, yeah. And so, and it, they, I think it cost them thousand pounds and a few free tickets. <laughs> yeah.
0: So go, going back to yeah. going back now to to the, the back, back to the, sort of the airlines. What, what was your what was your favourite route or least favourite route from there from the sort of early days then? In, in terms of well I,
1: I think the favourite airport to fly into was Hong Kong without a yeah. doubt, its uh, and I was born in Hong Kong purely because my dad was a, a sailor, he was a, uh, in the Royal Navy, he was captain of the dockyard, he was an engineer, and so I, I came back when I was two years old so I vague, vaguely remember it, but I started going to, to Hong Kong fairly early on and always found that an interesting place to fly into because you had the curved approach. I the, think that airport was built by the French, which people probably wouldn't like oh, yeah, to remind you yeah. of. And then of course once you got on the ground it was a pretty interesting place, you would say. Um, but generally um, go anywhere because it, it was all interesting from the flying point of view, the way air traffic control was organised. My uh, early, early days was, was, was on the North Atlantic on 7 hours going to New York, Boston, Detroit, Baltimore. We were going to a lot of places then.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, San Francisco, Honolulu. In fact, you could. Um, you were saying, <laughs> I, did I ever think of giving up motor racing?" I, uh, you know, sort of giving up flying for motor racing. Um, and I started and didn't finish it. When I was out on the west coast, a number of um, psychologists wanted to interview racing drivers because they'd been interviewing other sportsmen like golfers and uh, football players to see how their, how their personalities varied and I think it was the Myers-Briggs thing which was in 64 I remember filling this thing out on a, when I was in Honolulu taking ages you know <laughs> um, and I'm sure Jackie Stewart did his because Jackie's that sort of person he would follow through on that I don't know how many other people did it but I then went on my next trip, because I was flying through there quite regularly at the time. They analysed me, and they gave my results, and they just said, you are totally different to all the other competitors, because you lack raw aggression. Mm. He said, your personality is more like a psychologist, because you're thinking of other people most of the time. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, I was quite happy. And in fact, I subject we probably shouldn't get on to, but um, I started a small company building racing cars, because... Um, the bloke at Brabham said he could build a car and if he built it would I put an engine in it and drive it yeah. and I said yes and he we did that and I, he actually produced the car a friend of mine in the States said he could sell it so we were selling them but somebody came up to me or just made a comment he said the trouble is with Dibley running his racing car company is he's too soft because if somebody walks in the door he actually wants to help them if it's Chapman <laughs> he wants to screw every single penny out of it. <laughs> so but my first wife who was American came down to Brands with me and, and saw that I won and J- Sterling was there. Obviously Jackie and, and Jim were there yeah, and he thought, oh that's funny, he just got in and get in the car and win. <laughs> but then when we got married and she realized how much it, you know time it involved yeah. and she said oh, she hadn't, I hadn't got time for her. And I said, all right, I'll give up racing. She said, oh, no, I don't want to marry to an airline pilot. <laughs> <laughs>
0: What was your what was your least favorite favorite route? In it? So, Hong Kong Kai Tak was it was, was it the favorite airport? Did you have a least favorite route? You said, oh no, not not going. Do I have to go to that there, there? Or was there any, any places? That, I mean,
1: well, I suppose going to Africa was not the best. It depended what uh, what place you were going to. I, I tended to say it was all part of life's experience.
0: But because of the lack yeah. of nav aids in the eighties, and, and of course
1: you got in a, uh, hotels with no air yeah. conditioning, no anything. Because um, in those days, yeah, you know, the hotels were extremely basic. If you're going to, we used to go to Karachi and stay in the, in the Speedbird Rest House, which was, again, very basic stuff. <laughs> um, but uh, I think one just took it in in, in one stride. So. Uh,
0: and what about um, so? Ha- how long were you on 707s?
1: Because the next one after that is is 747, or did you go to the, the No, I went 747. Um, I. Where did I go? What? Sorry. Uh, so it was
0: it was uh, 747 after. Yeah,
1: I, I I was actually posted to the 747 in 1969, as a, as a navigator. Because what I, I uh, what I did in the mid 60s, um, the all the pilots were navigating and they had to be checked every yeah. year. So we had a, about five pilot navigators who were in the office doing checks on the pilots as they come through. Um, we We would look at we would analyze it each chart you know and the charts had to be you know uh, had to be filed, and we would just look at the charts to see if people didn't get lost <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then we we would give them a, a check once a year, give them performance checks or whatever um so i in fact was the was posted the seven four seven to be in charge of the navigation if the INS did not work.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Because INS was totally new. I mean, it, it was on in development stages, and sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. But it was the same system that uh, took the astronauts to the moon. So you might say BOAC was being ultra cautious. The first three 747s seven had sextants, <laughs> in case the INS didn't work.
0: Yeah. Of
1: which it obviously did. Um, and we had Loran fitted to the first. That's a you know electronic navigation aid with a CRT that was fitted to the first six aircraft which we never ever used um, because the INS turned out to be very reliable yeah. on the 7th yeah and so I was put on it when, it when as soon as the and I was meant to instruct the crews on the INS but in the end it was so relatively really simple it was taken over by the normal conversion course yeah. and I then became a pilot instructor on the simulator so I was actually a type rating examiner. Okay. On the 747 from
0: 1971. Wow. Okay. So just at the start of, I mean, it, would, it only came to service with, uh, you know, BAC in, you know, in 71. 71. Should have been 70.
1: Yeah. But uh, due to the discussion with the pilots, it, it, we didn't start until didn't get agreement with yeah. the pilots. I don't think anybody was that worried because the engine reliability was street was dreadful in the first <laughs> year, and I think BAC made more money. Selling the engines to other operators, <laughs> then so they weren't too fussed that they didn't have an agreement. But then it was a good, a good, interesting time for the crews because, well, these weren't necessarily on the airplane, you know, in flight. I should say, but one stage I remember in the seventy-three-ish, we were having six unscheduled engine changes per week on the flight on the fleet. Wow. Um,
0: so, what was your what was your Im- Im- impression? So, I mean, we, now we look back, it's 50 years of the 747. This, this year we're going another anniversary. Yeah. Did you did you get the impression at the time that this this is the the big leap forward, or or was it uh, this is just a bigger 707? This is just, just uh, you know it's, it's just slightly bigger and it's got, you know double deck debt,
1: uh, decks. You know. Um, uh, I think. Because
0: did, was there a, that kind of feeling that this? this is really the future of aviation?
1: I think because there were so many passengers then the, although obviously it was not in the commercial world uh, part of the policy in BOAC is that all the, we all were in one building at Heathrow and the, in the management dining room you had to sit down with somebody else from your not from your own department somebody from another department so you should learn what was going on in the rest of the airline so I tried to keep up with the commercial side and of course the, commo- the, the, the airplane was becoming more of a sort of wholesaler you know therefore I think that was the difference that they therefore the, the fares were dropping considerably um, still obviously had first class and you had the upper deck which was a lounge which didn't last long yeah. because it was soon filled up with, with, with people but the other thing which really impressed me about the 747, the 707 we had our freighters. They used to fly the 707 freighter. That would carry 40 tonnes of freight, but the 74 could also carry 40 tonnes of freight. So regardless of passengers, you be, could be carrying a, a 707 cargo load. Which made them uh, very attractive commercially. In fact, one of the reasons I understood that uh, uh, the president of Emirates was not terribly happy with the A380 to begin with, was because the cargo load on the A380 is not as good as the as the Boeing's. Yeah.
0: When, when you you know you talked about sort of uh, uh, being a sort of a, a, a part navigator I- initially, INS being reliable, and you, you've, your career has taken in multi crew pilot, co-pilot, navigator. Uh, flight engineer, yeah. radio, radio operator maybe uh, 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 you know, so no, right. from, from multi-crew to free crew and then two crew um, h- how has that sort of transformed the industry And do you think airliners could ever fly single pilot? Shortly? well
1: as I'm sure you know there's a lot of development going on in that area I'm a member of the Academy de L'Empere in, in based in Toulouse and um, Anna Garcia has done a study showing what needs to be done to go from two crew to one crew to to no crew but uh, their conclusion was that it's not going to happen now <laughs> <laughs> so I mean it could happen I guess but um, I think we just have to take it in very slow stages I think the next stage well, may be is to have a single pilot in the cruise
0: yeah.
1: uh, in, in BOAC you had two pilots and flight engineer but we always needed two crew in the cruise we didn't you know one person could snooze um, quite happily because there was always two other people yeah. there to watch when it comes to a two crew operation obviously on the longer sectors you must carry three pilots so the saving on long haul was not that great on the piloting side you might say um, but uh I think the important thing I still think is that this crew had crew crew monitoring between the two, which, as I had to say, BOAC did endeavour to introduce in 1960. There was a great talk, talk about CRM coming in in what 1990-ish. Yeah. But uh, the policy was in, in BOAC that both crews should be capable of monitoring each other yeah. uh, from that way on. Okay.
0: Um, okay. Um, and so, from from the 747, uh, you went on to the Tristar Is that right? Or? Yes,
1: we remerged with BA in in 1974. So initially, it was BOAC with, BA was split off from BOAC in 46. Then in the early 70s, politically, it was decided to have a holding board with a possibility of the remerger it's fair to be BEA was not making money yeah. so and BOAC did make money from the time that Charles Guthrie came in from 63 64 to 77 except I think in 70 when the 70s, 747s weren't flying so I don't think that was too too good a year but the rest of the time BOAC well, made money um, anyhow it was decided to re, re-merge BOAC BEA so initially from 74 it became B-A-O-D and BAED, operating under separate yeah. operator certificates, and BA had ordered 12 Tri-Stars which they couldn't operate efficiently, their utilisation was three and a half hours a day, whereas you should be operating eight, at least eight hours a day, I mean even the shorter operators now are operating up 15 hours a day I think. Yeah. So the British Airways Board decided to give two of the Tri-Stars to overseas division to operate to the Gulf. I in fact got my command direct on the 747 I became a first just a seat switch in 75 so I became a 747 captain when I was in fact 37, 38 uh, so I spent a long time as a co-pilot but I went straight as a captain on 747 so I was not quite happy with that yeah. and I, then as a, I'd been a training co- co-pilot I became a training captain again within two months so I was very happy there <laughs> <laughs> being a training captain at the bottom of the senior list, which if you're, if you're a training captain, you're you, you, the bidding system. You're aside from the bidding system. Yeah. Okay. Um, but then, if, uh, as the Tristar was being operated by BOAC, BEA great and it was being operated by OD. But of course, the BEA people were saying, "Well, it's our, our aeroplane, so our crew should fly it." And industrially, it was decided to have half BOAC, half BEA pilots with a flight engineer um, but operated to BOAC's procedures Okay. Um, BEAs were, were different to other people's to everybody else so basically we looked at those and said no we'll use our own and use Lockheed manuals because some of the uh, the, the manuals that BEA used like the minimum equipment listed we could not use because they didn't comply with the manufacturers. Um,
0: so i mean the i mean some people in 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 uh, in, in the u s for example talk about the you know talk about recent u s yeah. airline yeah. mergers and say you know they're, yeah. they're they're still they're still recovering from uh, All sorts of them, you yeah. know the, the, the big mergers there and there's the, a the difference what was the what was the you know the the corporate culture then of, of this merger coming from BAOAC and BEA? that there can you sort of talk around that a little bit i mean from from my perspective from from here it sort of seems well you know you've got the the, the <laughs> glamorous BOAC and a little bit more pedestrian kind of you know bus well, uh, well, drivers we, that we, we <laughs> <might> <laughs> be the
1: same of course but there was Is BA, that fair <laughs> that was up to BA always had a slightly jaundiced view of BOAC and um, the fact was you know when I I joined BOAC for various reasons uh, when I left the navy. I'll tell it as it is. Um, they just had the Manchester United accident at, at Munich, which is yes. very sad. And of course, we all have accidents, but the way it was handled was a bit odd. The captain was fired for sitting in the wrong seat. Mm. Um, then Lord Douglas of Kirkleside said uh, that he could, they were having some industrial trouble. He said, "Well, all PEA pilots are a bunch of sergeant pilots," which I didn't. I thought was a little odd. And then more, more commercially, you've got to make money. And BA was losing money, so they said, oh, we're going to take suites and papers, newspapers off the aircraft to save money. And I thought, you don't do that, because that's affecting the passengers. And I thought, well, it doesn't seem quite right. Mm. And it seemed very introspective. Uh, um, so I thought, well, I'll try for BOAC, and I got in. I thought, well, at least BOAC, you're, you're flying and competing internationally. Yeah. You're, you're operating other people's airplanes, you know, uh, which el- everybody else is doing. So um, that's, that's what attracted me to BOAC. And the fact was, whenever I met a BEA pilot, he would say, oh, fly, long-haul flying's boring, you know, it's awful flying. So, <laughs> well, it's a matter of choice. <laughs> but it then turned out, when we re the managers, and I was with a management person with VEA I knew quite well, Who said, and I said, well, such is the venom I've always been met with by BEA pilots or people. As soon as they realised I'm BOAC, it was far worse than the Navy and the Air Force. There's always a friendly (coughs) rivalry between the the Navy and the the Air Force pilots. Um, I said, the policy must have come from the top. And this person looked at me, he was a complete fool. He said, Of course it did. When BEA was split off from BOAC, they knew if they kept it similar to BOAC, and it was easy to remerge, They would lose status, so whatever BOAC did, they would do it differently, and they would slag them off at every opportunity. <laughs> so it was an interesting period, shall we say, to come to go through. And as I say, uh, on the Tristar, we had the, we were trying to get them both to work together, and I had I think I like to think we we did manage that. It, and I had to explain why we were doing it our way because in BEA the policy was the captain would take off, the co-pilot would fly the aeroplane because he was better at flying the aeroplane, flying instrument approaches and the captain would land it Mm. and um, I said no our policy is you have two blokes in either seat who are both capable of flying the aeroplane equally well.
0: So while we're still on on the uh, uh, British Airways part of your career, uh, mentioned one aircraft uh, we haven't mentioned yet, Concorde. So did did you do you ever put in for flying? Concorde? No. Well, I, all or I wanted to do
1: actually from the, from the 60s was to fly Concorde. And in 69, when I was posted to 74, being a probably a little so and so, I said to my boss, "Well, I really want to go on the Concorde. they hadn't even flown that." <laughs> and they said, "Well, you can go on it afterwards if you like." But I just got. I, as I say, in 675, I got my command on the 747, and once. Sh- yeah. You, you, you couldn't switch to the Concorde. Um, however, I was very close to the Concorde people, and I shared an office with the Concorde manager when I was a flight manager. And very early on, old Keith Myers, who was the training manager, you know, had me on the airplane trying to fly it at um, sixty thousand feet. So I, I was, i had great interest and admiration for the Concorde.
0: Yeah, and I,
1: I did flew on the Concorde as. Commercially, when I was with the Gulf, because I went to the Gulf line for the Arabs, and they would give you first class tickets. So I actually, when I went to Denver, flew on the Concorde commercially. Well, but then in in BA, um, management pilots had to do three engine ferries at that stage. If an engine would, and there was, I had a call at six o'clock in the morning saying, "Well, there's an, an aircraft stuck in New York. We need you to three engine ferry it back." you can go out on the Concorde, when are you going to come back? And I, kind of long story short, so I did two trips when I went on the Concorde out to New York and flew a three-engine ferry back on the 747. Yes, an engine ferry. And I did say to my friends on Concorde, if I can now fly a 747 back, why can't you fly your little aeroplane back now, instead of going to the hotel? No, it, it was a superb operation at Concorde.
0: So moving on, on, on from British Airways, you then went on to fly for the Abu Dhabi Gilman VIP flight, and that was yes, that was the seven four seven SPs. Yes. Right? So kind of a really rare variant of the of the jumbo. It jet. was
1: even more well, not particularly well, quite rare because they had Rolls Royce engines. It was taken; uh, it, they started production line out of it. After the, when the Arabs started the oil. They obviously were getting their own airplanes. Initially, uh, Abu Dhabi and Qatar subcontracted, you might say, wet-leased BOAC VC-10s, which were very popular. And they were superb, of course, the VC-10. I didn't go, I would have loved to go on the VC-10, but again, being on 7.0s, I couldn't switch. Um, Then when the the VC-10 started fading out, they were getting their own airplanes. They got a 7.07 in, in Abu Dhabi. And they wanted BOAC crews. So we would provide the crews from London and we would rotate the crews on a seniority and suitability. Not everybody would would go there. So we would pick the people in seniority order. Some people obviously were not because you had to be extremely flexible in yeah. that sort of operation. So they operated a 70, and then when they got the 7-4, they, Denzel Beard, who was in charge, then said to me, would I... Uh, set up the 747 I, I said well I didn't want to leave BA so I was in fact sub- subcontracted seconded yeah. to. to um, so I set up the 747 and then eventually became the acting director operations which was in charge of the seven airplanes but also 43 stewardesses who of which 40 were Arabic and that was not easy to manage, shall we say, because you didn't know what the rules were from day to day. So That's I did that for a couple of years, anyhow.
0: Okay. And what what are they? What, what are they outfitted like on the the inside? Oh, go go. What?
1: Lufthansa did a very good job on the 707. They had Lufthansa technique, which would, yeah. would do the internal. The Americans, there was, they had D Howard in San Antonio, Texas. So the airplane would be bought from Boeing, yeah. flew, flown down to San Antonio, and spent. Years there, I mean, two, two years probably, being fitted out. They'd actually had gold plated thrust, thrust levers. <laughs> that was a bit of a gimmick. <laughs> but obviously, the whole a- interior was ripped out and they would have marshes, just open areas where they could sit down. Yeah. They were very proud of having a goat oven. They had an oven which was sufficiently large to take a goat. And the aeroplane would have it's usual now, but in those days it was not. It had a satellite which was a marine satellite in the wow. bubble it was a it was which would rotate taken off a ship basically wow. and so they had a, a large section, which was all communications because um, I should say initially getting back to the early days of flying you were all using high high frequency radio hf yeah yeah
0: which
1: was very difficult to get through. You'd spend the whole evening shouting and screaming on your <laughs> chest. And the
0: Morse code? Did you have no Morse code?
1: We had, well, yeah, we had to do, we didn't do Morse. I was just too late for that. We had a radio operator just on the airplanes before I, uh, before I arrived. And the Comet 1,
0: yeah.
1: had a, uh, which I only learned the other day, it had two pilots, a navigator and a, and a radio operator because they still needed Morse code. The co-pilot used to pre-compute his astro, yep. get out of the seat at top of climb and take his astro fix yep. and um, then get back in the seat f- for the descent. That was getting a bit too cavalier. I think. <laughs> and On this Comet 4, we didn't have that. We had a
0: you know, proper navigator. Yeah. And So moving on from the uh, the Abu Dhabi kind of royal flight you then went to air uh, Hong Kong so
1: that was, that, was the, that was a freight airline? Yes it was uh, totally freight yeah. uh, as I say of course the Abu Dhabi operation was superb because you were flying the head of states uh, I remember flying all the Abu Dhabi head of states from Abu Dhabi up to Beijing so it was Sheikh Mohammed, Sheikh Khalifa of uh, uh, very nice people I and mean, very competent people I mean Sheikh Mohammed he had the Dubai Air Wing. He flies on airplanes. Yeah. Um, but yes, I, I then the contract with with Abu Dhabi came to an end, and so I then was leaving BOAC, and I got to know Air Hong Kong because they bought 707s. I was still current on the 707 while I was flying the 747, and they needed it put on the Hong Kong register. So while I was on a trip, I think probably. With BA or maybe you know I, I did fly it especially. Uh, I, I did a C of A, you know, certificate Worth worthiness for them to accept it onto the Hong Kong register, yeah. which was the same as the British register. And they they said to me, oh, we're getting 747s. Would you come and join us then? And I thought, well, I'll believe that when it happens. And it did, but it was they were in big trouble economically, and they were talking about going broke and and a person called Stanley Ho took over the, uh, the operation he was about to wind it up but part of my interest I didn't really mention this uh, when I gave up motor racing I went into fuel conservation which I found just as interesting frankly as driving airplane uh, you know cars in circles okay. uh, because the airplanes were not being operated very efficiently and more significantly coming into Heathrow the airplanes were being descended down to 2,500 feet and the fact was that BA, which was the majority operator coming in here, had a, a simple procedure. They said, leave the holding fix, gear down, flap 10, auto thrust in. So they were leaving the holding fix in a very high drag configuration. Didn't matter where the holding fix was. Yeah. And I'd flown from Lambon in the east all the way round over handling a back again for 20 minutes with the gear down on a trident. On the other hand, I was going over putting the children around Regent's Park Zoo, and you could see that the aircraft coming off Bobbington, going on a heading south out over Greenwich and then over London, the B aircraft coming up with the gear down so they would descend very quickly, whereas the DC-9s of SAS and KLM would be sort of gliding over, and then of course the fact was they'd be then flying at 2,500 feet right over the centre of London. And I lived to the west, and they came over the house, you could not talk.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So I wrote an article in the Guild of Air Pilots journal saying that we should start descending ap- approaches. We shouldn't be sort of coming diving down diving. to tuna, we should be actually coming down on a, dec- on a controlled descent. Mm-hmm. And that was introduced in 1975.
0: Oh, okay. Um, so a yeah. lot of people in, in London. What? A lot of people in London have you to thank for a quieter, a, a quieter life.
1: Yeah, the people further <laughs> out. Probably the people in <laughs> Richmond will never be happy. <laughs> and Hounslow even. You know. But yes, in fact, the person who, initially BEA said no, we can't do that because we need the, we need the thrust for the engines. But then Lufthansa came along a year later and started preaching exactly the same philosophy. And it was picked up by the press, including The Economist and people like that. And then Nats basically said to be, you've got to introduce this. And it was introduced in BEA by a lovely man called uh, Frank Dell. And Frank introduced it to BEA, but he very sweetly, when I saw him some years later, he said, well, that was... Probably my biggest achievement in life. He said, but it was your idea.
0: Now now fuel efficiency is the number one thing that airlines worry about. Any any (laughs) fraction you can get. Amazing. Uh, But that was in in 73.
1: I started that because of course the fuel price went up significantly, yes.
0: Oh, okay. So... Uh, from Air Con- Hong Kong you then went on to Airbus in, in yes. Toulouse well, uh, so fly-by-wire uh, on, on, and, and on, the,
1: on the way there should we say yeah. what I like about Air Hong Kong is just a straight freight operation you, yeah. you might say how terrible but it was really carrying the maximum payload at minimum cost that was my boss in BOAC old Jimmy Andrew, had on his desk handwritten notes saying lest we forget our job in flight operations is to carry the maximum payload at minimum cost It was interesting when we re-merged with BEA and the big book of rules came out, payload wasn't even in the index. (laughs) (laughs) But um, anyhow, that was... And so what we did was to try and get the operation more efficient by doing re-clearances and getting the payloads up, which we did. And in fact, Stanley Ho realised that it could actually probably make money. And they were he was just about to shake his hand with China Southern, with a Captain Hugh of China Southern, when Cathay, who had always been trying to smother Air Hong Kong, yeah, yeah. realised that they had to make a sensible bid, and it was bought by Cathay. Mm-hmm. So, um, at that stage, I should have been the, become the VP, I was the chief pilot. But of course, when you remerge, all the top there goes. Yeah, yeah. But at, coincidentally, at the top, which I didn't mention, when I went back to 707s as a manager we were operating 11 aeroplanes outside BA even though BA was not operating 70s we had a little Air Force they called it and one of them was the Air Mauritius scheduled operation and um, we operated their 707 for them and in fact getting back to fuel conservation uh, we actually in fuel over Air India saved them more fuel than the cost of the crews
0: Wow. Because
1: they they agreed that we'd save them about 13%. And the cost of the crews were $2 million uh, a year. And so uh-huh. the, so the crews, which were only costing them, were less than $200,000 a year. So that was always been my interest, really. Yeah. Um, so Air Mauritius then asked me to go back as the Director of Operations. Initially they'd said when I was in Abu Dhabi, would you like to come back, it's, it's a non-flying job. I said, no, thank you. And they said, oh, we're getting A340s, so we'll give you an A340 course. So I joined Emirates. we're given an A340 course, then was introduced to Airbus. Yeah. And I, I was with Emirates with for a year, um, but uh, like a good friend of mine who was in Air2000, the human resources people felt they ran the airline. <laughs> And I clashed with them slightly, so um, decided to leave. What and and because I got to know Airbus, and then an Airbus said, will come and work for us."
0: What was the? Uh, what was your? Your was it a big culture shock then to come from a, uh, you know, a, the, the Boeing culture or the Lockheed culture, or even de Havilland and, and well, side sticks, fly-by-wire. No, it's, I think that's grossly overdone,
1: frankly. Yeah? Grossly overdone. <laughs> um, and I would say another thing is that I thought I'd done quite a good job going from a 747 Classic without a, without flight management. We had yeah. flight management on 747 in BA to an A340. And I thought it was a great achievement. But then when I was working for Airbus um, and, and checking pilots, Chinese pilots, I remember checking a Chinese captain who had gone from two pull-off one to a, an A340 not speaking one word of english <laughs> i thought well that's a that's a pretty good achievement and i mean you know signed him out he, he knew what he was doing and i I flew into china with on on delivery flights with chinese crews and i mean you, they they seem to be operating quite well do yeah. they not in china um so yes i mean they're all 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 aircraft and um I know there are people who are who are very pro air pro airbus pro well Pro Boeing and saying you know Boeing allows the crew to um, to control the airplane. I know the comment was that a Boeing is an aircraft you can fly manually and also automatically.
0: Yeah.
1: An Airbus you fly automatically, but you can't fly manually. Yeah. But you have to fly both of them manually. And the fact is with Airbus you have to understand the systems. The important thing is to understand the systems.
0: Yeah. Uh, okay. And. What what was your what was your uh, the types you flew? What was your what was your favourite aircraft of them all?
1: I mean, uh, I would have to say my days on the seven four seven were very happy days. This was in the seventies, yeah. When it was still, BOAC was still a respected airline, shall we say, and uh, we were operating out to, out to to Sydney, in the east and all over the place, and it was a big step the 7-4 was a big step because uh, we went to INS navigation of course obviously flight management came along later on and I, I, everybody loved the tristar i think as you probably said you've heard and lockheed were, were well ahead of of the industry we when i was on the tristar which i didn't we didn't mention this you which know, i was when we remerged um with be I was actually helping define the, the Tristar 500, the Lockett long, wow. the long long range version, and putting an FMS. The first FMS was going to go on that, and so, and in fact they they did a a 4D flight, you know, um, landing on a specific time, on the Tristar in about. Uh, Seventy-seven, I think, ish, wow. <laughs>
0: okay. and I
1: was mentioning that to Airbus when they were saying how clever they'd just done a 4 flight <laughs> <the one actually. laughs> So I mean, the the, time, the Lockheed again, the Lockheed was a lovely airplane. Yeah, um, okay. but I guess old fat Albert because of the the crew the structure. It's interesting. Most of the airline crews will will go for the for the route rather than the aircraft. Really? Yeah, I think you will find now uh, most most pilots in a long range, especially in a long range aircraft.
0: Operation. I mean, um, so you, you, you've you've had you've been uh, your career has obviously spanned you know such a wide variety of, of aircraft and, and and the new technology that comes in FMS and fly by wire and, and side sticks and um, what, what do you think was the biggest uh, the biggest leap in aviation safety that you've seen over here since, the, since the dawn of the jet age? Um, don't know if you could point to say? Wow, that really, that really was, it, was it, you know, a, 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 a game changer. You know, well, like would you believe TCAS? This,
1: no, it, well, TCAS certainly probably saved the the um, operation over Africa, I guess, because initially flying down to Africa, no, no, nobody would know where you are. The yeah. air traffic control was appalling, but there wasn't much traffic. <laughs> Then after Apartheid, of course, the traffic came up and I always felt it was but But I, perhaps ironically, I would say DME distance measuring equipment in the which came in in the late sixties because before that you just didn't know where you were. Yeah. Now as soon as D, the DME came in, the distance measuring equipment, which was a hike, you knew how far you had to go to um, to land or to the wherever you're going. Therefore, you could immediately start um, computing your what height you should be at. Most people just multiply by three. Yeah. And in fact, I didn't mention that. I the Americans w- were used it going into the states a lot. They would give you a clearance based on DME, and they would say you would descend to eleven thousand plus sixty DME at at um, fifteen thousand or below. And you could work that out. Now, some that's difficult to work out in your head. Yeah. yeah. Because you have to look at the DME, subtract sixty multiply by 3 and add 15,000 and I defy anybody to do that (coughs) in their head so I came up with a little circular slide rule but it also meant to say that you can actually do non-precision approaches just with a table I mean I had it with a little circular slide rule which would just give you the distance you should be at and the altitude you should be at on the approach and that's what I didn't mention is that when part of the descending approaches into Heathrow My suggestion was we should put DME on on the runway, which wasn't at the time. And as it was not necessary for ATC. ATC wouldn't pay for it. But the Department of Transport, I think it was, who was responsible for noise, they paid for the DME. That was in 1975. My whole argument was that once you got the distance, then you could start doing gliding approaches. Without, Without knowing how far you were at, and we had some silly accidents. TWA had one in going to Washington um, where the person ended up 2,500 feet, 20, 30 miles from the field. Now, you multiply by three, you should be yeah,
0: yeah. at
1: uh, 9,000 feet. You yeah. know. Um, so, that's ironically, I would say, one of the things, then you've got, obviously, you're going to say INS and, and... Tip, But that was the, a large safety improvement. There were a lot of accidents... The highest cause of accidents was, non, was non-position approaches where people didn't know where they were and they would land short of the field.
0: Yeah.
1: If they used DME properly and it could be in front of you or behind you then you could do a non a, 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 a constant angle non-position approach.
0: Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, what about uh, you know, mentioning a- accidents uh, what, what was your your, your your you had any hairiest near misses or close calls that you've uh, <laughs>
1: A well, well I, I would say the problem, you might say the most dramatic, was an engine failure, an engine fire out of Perth, where um, the first officer flying it, old Don Mitchell, was flying it. And just as I picked the gear up, the fire warning went off.
0: And what, what aircraft was it? 747.
1: 747. It was in 1983. And um, it, it, there was a smell of burning. And so it was opposite fire. And I remember Tom was flying it so he just said alright. Engine fire drill number whatever engine, number one engine. And we'd actually in BOAC, we were three crew of course, we shut the engine down probably about two, three hundred feet. Climbed away and by doing the drill you fire off two fire bottles. But the, the warning light stayed on. Oh. And so you then wound it up to 250 knots, 280 knots to try and blow it out. Still fire warning light was on I looked out of the window pitch black night I said well I can't see anything it's number one engine so we spoke to the cabin crew in charge and said did you know something down there said yes there was flames from that engine or sparks and that's now stopped the uh, smoke had gone the smell of smoke had gone so I remember saying to Don what do you want to do Don go on to Bombay on three engines (laughs) so he said "No." Dump fuel, go back. So this is what we did, and just the three of us. You know, we were happy to go back, yeah. and we landed back at obviously max landing weight, and that was the end of it basically. But the warning light went out when they changed the
0: engine. <laughs>
1: uh, I always said, if that had been an ECAM airplane, if that had been an Airbus, yeah. the ECAM would have told you to land back on the runway over max weight. You probably would have blown all the fusible plugs so the tire, you know, wheels might have caught fire. And then evacuate people on the runway so we would have 375 people out on the runway. And I said we used our ex- only one CIA man said oh no no, no fire was on, you should have gone back. I said we used our extra sense of smell. <laughs> 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 but the other one if you want to know the closest probably was on a TriStar Yep, which had a not a spectacular climb performance and it was very unfair to air traffic control because we were operating VC-10s and TriStars alternate days we asked for climb clearance from 35 to 39,000 roughly over Sofia, we were coming up from Istanbul up, and we were staggering up at a very low rate of climb and I saw a 747 coming the other way I couldn't see it was 747, just a trail and I looked at this thing and it turned in towards us we were going through 37,000 feet and it was just coming straight towards us so I took the autopilot out no I didn't, I, I used the turn knob Yeah. turn didn't so I took the autopilot and turned it went down the side I remember calling up ATC and said uh, what was the call sign of that Air and Air 747 we got the registration, we didn't get the call sign <laughs> the co coincident was an Iranian who worked for Airbus, now he told a good story mind you um He's, I told him that story, he said I was the first officer on that 747 now whether that was true or not I don't know, <laughs> but that was probably the closest but he also said that you needed to look out, not everybody said oh you don't need to look out
0: there's, there's nothing that occurs to me obviously uh, you know, flying around the world in those days with, with um, uh, uh, limited navigation than, than what we have today is, is uh, I mean large parts of the world would be off limits and, and you know, due uh, to the Cold War you had you had the had the barriers open and, and you had uh, uh obviously uh and the
1: places you couldn't fly over. Yeah, right?
0: yeah. I mean did you have any, any sort of instance there where you, you were, uh, were we're flying to Moscow and we we've, we've deviated off track here no, and we, we but no, I and do, are up to put i up to kind of meet us?
1: No, we did have a seven oh seven which uh, got it was at the time of, of was it Gorbachev or not? It, it was the Russians were coming to see the 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 Brits, you know, at a high level, and going from Delhi to Tehran. Again, the the wind's could be quite strong. I, I remember d- doing twenty minute astro on a comet, and uh, I took this a fix after twenty minutes, leaving a VOR, and we were thirty miles south of track. And I thought, well, have I made a mistake? I'm glad to say it wasn't 60 miles out of track because I would immediately thought I'd use the wrong latitude to start working everything out again. But basically, was it was just the wind yeah. was, was 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 in was forecasting correctly, and there was a 707 where it then they found that the wind was forecast um, northwesterly and it was southwesterly, oh. and they got up too far north, and they ended up. And apparently, the Russians had picked that up.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Um, and but we in the nav office had picked it up and sort of looked at it mainly because one of the friends, a girlfriend was a steward and said oh we lost 20 minutes going into Tehran the other day so we thought well, what happened to that one <laughs> 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 so we were prepared with the answer
0: <laughs> OK I think we're about just uh, to, uh, to, uh, to wrap it up here um, Let's, let's uh, just to finish off with uh, your thoughts on, on the, f- the future of the future of airlines, the future of civil, ova- civil aviation. What, 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 what do you think? You know, having seen this, this progress of technology and, and, uh, you know, uh, and navigation and safety, uh, what do you think? Would be the next big leap for civil aviation, do, do you think supersonic flight might come back one day? Or well,
1: I think that's in fact the can't bit of land less pass. Uh, just produced a paper or or discussion. Which, funnily enough, I could have brought, but I haven't. I can give it to you. Where they feel no, it's not going to happen. They're talking about building it for small smaller aircraft, but it's they're not going to be economic. That's no. the, the feeling. And of course, it depends if you're talking about the environment and the ecology. They are grossly more in, inefficient and producing more carbon and all the various uh, emissions. So. The kind of a delay, and I should say who've just looked at it and they feel no, that the, the the current ones are going to be very difficult there might be some small supersonic VIP aircraft yeah. perhaps but nothing of any substantial side is not thought as you know there's always been talk of flying wings and things like that, are they going to come along some people say yes, some people say no I should say of course that the big advantage of Flying around now is, is the aids, uh, you know, with GPS approaches. So, where you don't have to do visual approaches. Having said that, my feeling always is that a, the most efficient approach is a visual approach. Once you can see the runway yeah. and fly it, in fact, I could say I was going into, into Heathrow downwind uh, on a 747, and at the same time as a Concorde was going off, and because the Concorde had a had a fixed route. They would fly over Greenwich and they would put it into the INS system so they'd always fly that way. Yeah. And I remember looking down to see the runway there and say calling up Heathrow and saying, uh, Can I do a visual approach? And they said, Yeah, help yourself. So I just turned oh, in and they actually said, Oh, well, uh, you better back off because you'll cack out the Concorde. So <laughs> he turned inside the Concorde. <laughs> Which just shows that if you know, if it's a, it's the most efficient approach is when you can yeah. fly visually. Otherwise, you're doing it automatically you've got to pre-program it having said that um, people I respect now in the Caribbean you know we used to really have good flying just flying visually around the Caribbean they were saying people just lose the skill of flying visually so they tend just to opt for the, the standard now you know GPS approach yeah, where, yeah. where they know the airplane can fly it yeah.
0: But. Uh, do you think hybrid electric aviation for short haul, uh, would, uh, well, that, would, would, well, that, would that make a change in operation because there you, you, you're, you, know, you, you talked about kind of fuel, uh, fuel management. The noise
1: the noise too, I mean that's what, I'm wondering if, if, you know there was talk of Boris Island and all that, will aircraft in due course become sufficiently quiet that they won't make any noise and you look a bit stupid when you Built a <laughs> out and in fact maybe Heathrow might be yeah. uh, might be acceptable. Yeah. Um, it's going to take some time. I'm sure you, the the idea is to have rather than uh, two engines, you you have one engine with a generator and lots of electric motors driving propellers. That's probably the next stage, is it not? Very small aircraft, of course, they might do the electric uh, be powered electrically yeah. but then the other people have been talking about all oh, this time is hydrogen power yeah There's, I went to a, a place in France and he, a person had, had built a hydrogen model aircraft I mean a fairly big one but his comment was that uh, the the equivalent electrically takes and i probably got the time exactly, not exactly right it takes about two hours to charge and last for half an hour, whereas the hydrogen one takes ten minutes to charge, and lasts for half and a half. Mm. But again, hydrogen is one of those things that's always people have their ideas about, but it's until you get the generation,
0: yeah. and storage. Yeah. Fantastic. Right. Okay. So on, on that that note, unless there's anything I've forgotten. Well, no, I don't know what you <laughs> <laughs> what you want. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Well, it's been I, fantastic I to, thought, uh, to, uh, to, to get you on the record and uh, many thanks. Well, Thank you very much. Pleasure, Tim.